This podcast is available in video at fpcgulfport.org and FPC Gulfport on YouTube. Over 5,000 years ago, there was a day of great darkness, a day in which clouds blocked out the sun. God's wrath was poured out in what we know to be a flood, a flood of biblical proportions, as they say, a flood that filled every corner of the globe. Now, as you think back to that event, the question is why? Why would God do such a thing? Why would he send this flood? Well, Genesis 6, if you were to go all the way back to the start of the Bible, it said that God did it because the people were wicked. He did it because the people were bad. God had given them instructions. He told them how to live, and yet they had not done so. These were terrible people. This was a motley generation. This was a generation given over to every sin imaginable. And so, because God is just, he dealt justly with them. He disciplined them for their transgressions, and it involved the outpouring of his wrath in the flood. Clouds came in, sky grew dark, the rains came down. But the good news is that one day the rain stopped. The good news is that, yes, although the floods came down, and although God's wrath was poured out, that in due time the rain stopped. The rain stopped, the clouds parted, the sun came forth, even a rainbow bedecked the sky. You could say that God's judgment was followed by a season of grace and forgiveness and even hope for the future. Now, if you've spent any time in your Bible, you'd know that that pattern continues for a while. It isn't just occupy the first book of the Bible, but the whole of the Bible. The pattern looks something like this. God tells the people what to do, how to live, what his expectations are. He gives them great examples of how to do these things. He sends them prophets and kings and leaders to show them how to live, what to do, and they routinely rebel against that. God's people not only historically consistently fail to do what he's told them to do, but then they've doubled down on that by thumbing their nose at him. He tells them, no other gods but me. And what has some of these clowns come up with in the centuries around Micah's age? Well, God says, you shall have no other gods but me. And some of the kings say, hey, what about the gods of the pagan nations? What about the gods to the people in my east and west and north and south? Things that seem to be going pretty well for them, let's bring in their gods as well. The people seemed intent on provoking God. Now, if you're God, to the degree we can, put yourself in God's shoes for a moment. You've told the people what to do, how to live. You've given them instructions. You've given them provision. You've given them everything that they need, even the very breath that's in their lungs. And they respond to that by not doing what you tell them to do by breaking all your laws and then they have the gall to go worship the gods of the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Philistines and the Greeks and the Romans and the like. If you're a just and a good and a holy God, what is your response to that? Is it going to be a divine shrug of your shoulders? Well, that's not the way God works. He wouldn't be a good, holy, and just God if he did do that. Rather, God needs to respond. And historically, when his people have done that, he has responded through discipline. Now, no one likes to be disciplined. All of us were young at some point. All of us know what discipline is like. No one enjoys that. But the good news in the context of God's discipline is that it is only for a season. The good news of God's discipline is that it ends. Just as the flood departed, the clouds broke, the sun came out, so too is there hope and forgiveness for you and I even after we've gone through the dark days of his discipline. Well, back in the 8th century B.C., back in the time of this guy Micah, the clouds, clouds were moving in. And Micah saw it, and a host of the other prophets saw it. They saw the clouds, and they knew what was coming, and they knew it was going to be bad. 
And so they warn the people that this is not going to turn out well. And Micah, this prophet, if you were to read all seven chapters of his book, what you'd see is that Micah says, look, it's not only going to turn out bad, but I will give you specifics, specificity on what's going to happen. And he says it's the Assyrians. You know those guys? They're going to come knocking. They're going to come for us. And when they're done with us, watch out Jerusalem because Babylon is coming. Even before these events occurred, Micah identified with specificity what was going to happen. That's not a cosmic accident. That's not a coincidence. That's the hand of God speaking through Micah to his people. But they didn't listen. That's the great epitaph of really all the kings and all the generations around this time. They didn't listen. So Micah, like all the other prophets, like Jeremiah the weeping prophet, he had a hard ministry. He knew that they were not responsive and he knew that judgment was nigh. And so that's what he told them. But in today's text, he made sure to encourage their hearts by knowing this, that after God's disciplining hand came, there would be time of grace, there would be a time of forgiveness, and there would be, for all the bad kings that they had had in times past, there would now be a good king. Micah looked forward to a king that would transcend all the clowns of his age and generation, all the kings of the pagan nations, all the kings that Judah, that Israel had been under, there was a better one coming on the horizon. So in chapter 5 that we're looking at this morning, better days are anticipated through the arrival of a special child in one of the smallest, least important cities in all the land. All right, let's look at verse 1, and then we'll work our way through these five verses. Verse 1, Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. All right, in verse 1, if we were to go back, we're not doing this as part of a series, so bear with me, but if you were to go back and look at the first three chapters of Micah, they make for some hard reading. The first few chapters, he's telling them what's to happen. In verse 1, we see a continuation of this message, this warning. God, through Micah, is telling the people to get ready. Tough times are coming. He's warning them. The Assyrians, their war machine was on the horizon. The clouds are coming and the Assyrians were waking up. Meanwhile, the Israelites were sleeping. So he tells them, it's coming. No matter how you might close your eyes and pretend it's not real, this judgment is coming. And then he adds, he says that this siege will be raised up against us through the hand of God using this pagan nation. And then he says that these people will come and they'll strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. Now a judge in this context is a reference to the king, the leader of Israel. And when Israel's king was to be struck by the rod of another king, it's one king striking another king it's a picture of defeat it's a picture of humbling that was on the horizon so no matter how you slice this verse judgment was coming when a god of fire and brimstone says hey watch out that's a good time to open your eyes because his track record says he does not mess around now let me stop for a minute what if the book of micah ended right there what if the book of micah ended right there we'd have a shorter sermon that's for sure But what if it ended? Seriously, what if that was it? What if all we had in Micah was just this warning? Hey guys, watch out, doom is coming. And then Micah took his banner, his quill, or what have you, and puts it down, closes up the script, and that's it, and that's all. What if that was the case? Well, that would not be very encouraging. If the only prophecy that any generation had to look forward to was one of destruction and doom, that would be terrible. But fortunately, God was not done. This is not the last word. Verse 1 is not the last word on the matter. Judgment was coming, clouds were moving in, but those clouds would part and the sun would shine once more. If you would, let's look at the coming of that sun in verse 2. Verse 2 says this, 
But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old of everlasting. All right. If verse 1 foretold Israel's destruction and exile, then what kind of prophecy do we see in verse 2? Well, it seems to be a good one. It seems to be a prophecy of great hope. Verse 1 talked about something bad that was imminent, but then we see a transition to something, something in verse 2, something better. The transition seems to look past the imminent judgment to the arrival of some future king or ruler. Now, what do we know about this ruler from this text? What kind of king or ruler is this text anticipate? Well, verse 2, if you look at it, it tells us two things about this king. The first one is where he would be born. It says, when this one comes, he will come from Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephratah. That's the first thing we learn, where he would be born. The second thing we learn is this, that his goings forth are from old from everlasting. Let's take those two observations one at a time. The first one with regards to where he would be born, the little town of Bethlehem. Now why in this text, someone asked me, why is Bethlehem referred to as Bethlehem Ephratah in this text? Well, in Jewish history, if you were to look back, Bethlehem had two names. One was Bethlehem, the other was Ephratah. If you were to look back, it's Genesis 35, the burial of Rachel. In Genesis 35, verse 19, you see the reference to where she was buried near Bethlehem as referred to in that text both as Bethlehem and as Ephratah. Since this was a city or a town that had two names. Now, although it had two names, that was not a sign that it was very significant. It had two names, but this is not a major metropolis in the Middle East. In fact, we believe it only had maybe a few hundred citizens at the time of this writing. This would have been a small place. In Micah's day, to say that that's where the king's going to come from, I don't know, pick your town in Mississippi that's the least likely to have the king, a ruler, or president come from. That's what you have here. That's what you have. It's a small, nondescript place. People had heard of it, but it had no real clout. It was a small place in Micah's time, and guess what? It was a small town in Jesus' time. It never grew much beyond that. But, but there was something very, very significant about Bethlehem. I'll ask you to think about that. What's significant about Bethlehem? Who of, I don't know, anyone else in the Bible, who else was born in Bethlehem? David. I'm glad no one said Moses. David was born in Bethlehem. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because David was the best king the people had ever had. When the people looked back at the glory days and they thought about some great ruler of the past, they always came back to David. David ruled in the golden age of Israel's history. When people looked back at David and shortly thereafter the temple was built under the reign of Solomon, those were the glory days. Now, David had been a shepherd in Bethlehem. This is significant too. David, when he he was small, he was a shepherd in Bethlehem. Well, in this text, in this text, what we see is this, is that God is predicting through Micah that this great wondrous king who would show up, he would also be born in Bethlehem, and he would also be, as we know him, a shepherd, but a shepherd of souls. When the people of Micah's day heard that a king was coming and that this king would be born in Bethlehem, it would have immediately caused their ears to perk up. Because they knew, they knew the history and the success of the people that had under the reign and watch and rule of the last king that had come from Bethlehem. So this was not going to be any average, ordinary king. 
is what the people would have taken away from that. Now to prove that this wouldn't be any average ordinary king, look at what Micah wrote at the end of verse 2 when he said that this king's coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Now that is quite a statement. What do you think that this implies? If he says this king, the one that's coming, the one that'll be born in Bethlehem, his comings are from old, from ancient days. What do you think that implies? Well, I have a theory. If you're talking about someone whose origins are of old, whose coming forth is from ancient days, then bear with me. It's very possible that this one is no mere man of flesh and blood, but this one is of divine origins. Over the years, I have seen a lot of birth announcements. If you're on our email chain here at the church, you'll probably get them. There's a number of birth announcements and the like, and they tell us about the child and how healthy the child is and what the child weighed and so forth. A lot of different birth announcements. Now, for all the ones that I've seen, not a single one of them has said this, that the baby's birth that is coming forth is from ancient days. I've never seen this, and neither will you. So what did it imply about this one? What does it imply about this Christ child? Well, it implies this. That Micah, as he's looking forward to the coming of this one who would be born in Bethlehem, it was going to be no average ordinary king, but this one was going to come from on high. This would be nonetheless than the Son of God. All right, let's build on that as we look at verse 3. Verse 3, Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. All right, verse 3 reminds the reader what we've been saying before, that dark clouds were coming. It was going to happen, but that they would not last forever. Now, in 722 B.C., Israel would be conquered by the Assyrians, right on schedule. In 586, Judah, the southern kingdom, would fall to who? To the Babylonians. 586, right on schedule. But, but neither one would stay there. They would be exiled away, they'd be taken away, and I want to remind you, this was all recorded way before it happened. This was recorded in advance. Multiple prophets wrote this down. Multiple prophets said what was going to happen with specificity. You ever wonder about the validity of Scripture? You ever sit back and go, I don't know about that Bible. Well, I tell you, look at the truth claims of fulfilled prophecy. Things were written down long before they happened, and then they happened just as they were written down. Not an accident, not a coincidence. It happened because this is the hand of God who ordains all things. In time, God had ordained that, yes, the people would be judged, yes, they would be dealt with, but they would also be returned to their land. They would be taken away, they'd be brought in exile, but they would also be brought back by the hand of God into the promised land. That's what we see in verse 3. Therefore he shall give them up. Until the time that she who is in labor is given birth, then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. Now let me stop for a minute before we go any further. As you know, the prophet Micah, he wasn't the only prophet. There were other prophets, and there was one in particular, one other major prophet who also spoke and prophesied during roughly the 8th century B.C. Does anyone know? Major prophet, prophesied roughly during Micah's age? Isaiah. At nearly the same time that Micah was talking about a future king's birth, if you were to turn back a few pages in Scripture, the prophet Isaiah recorded these words, these Christmas words in Isaiah 7. He said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. 
For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you. This is anticipated before it happens. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house, days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. Both Isaiah and Micah served the same God. And guess what? They had the same message recorded well in advance of that which was fulfilled. So they both anticipated that the Assyrians were coming. This was bad news. And, you know, sometimes God is very kind and patient to us. Sometimes if he wants us to do something, we'll hear it from one person. God will use human instruments to tell us his will or desire for us. But then, because he knows we can be kind of hard-headed, sometimes he'll have someone else speak to us. And then what happens is we're hearing God's will and wisdom for us in stereo. Well, that's what's happening here. God so loved his people that he sent them prophets who told them in stereo from multiple directions what to expect. And what to expect, again, had a negative component because judgment was involved. But there was also repeatedly in both prophets an anticipation of a child. Both prophets looked forward and they said, one is coming. One is coming. One will be born of a virgin. One will be called a man. And one will be born in Bethlehem. Not accident. Not coincidence. God's hand through Micah, through Isaiah, telling the people, telling us who he is, what his plan is, and like a neon arrow pointing to the person and work of Jesus. All right, let's look at our final verses, verses 4 and 5, to see what this Jesus would do. Verse 4, And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. You know, if you told most people of antiquity, if you told people in the olden days that a king was coming, if you told them that a king was headed their way, there's a king coming down the road, you know what the reaction of people would be? If you told people in some hamlet or town or city or borough that, oh, the king is coming, do you think they'd be excited or do you think they'd be anxious? Well, typically the people were anxious. Typically, they freaked out. They were scared of kings, and there was good reason. You see, when kings came to town, they could do just about anything they wanted. Why? Because they were the king. And when they came to a town or to a village or to a borough, if they saw anything they liked, guess what? It was theirs. If they wanted to conscript your sons into their service, they could. If they wanted to take your daughters from you, they could. If they wanted to levy additional taxes, they could. They could do all these different things. And because of that tyranny, because of the taxes, because of what a king might do when he arrived, the people really, they were happy to keep the king far away from them. However, for as tough as so many of the kings have been across the centuries, that's not the sort of king that we see in verse 4. This king who was prophesied in verse 4, this one who would come, this Emmanuel, this God with us, he would not come to his people in order to deprive his people. You understand that? Emmanuel did not come to deprive his people, but verse 4 says he came to feed them. He didn't come to deprive them, he came to feed them. He shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of his God, and they shall abide. For so many centuries, the kings had been just a rogues gallery. Dear heavens, read Kings and Chronicles sometime. Just pick any given page and see which king you comes up with. And chances are, it's going to be an absolute villain. And when you read about that king... As is the case so often with these kings, when you get to the last part of his epitaph, it's going to say that this king did more evil than the kings who preceded him. 
It's amazing how they compounded their sins time and time again. That's what's their expectation. But this king that was coming would not be a wolf. He would be a shepherd. This is a really important distinction. He would not be a wolf. He would be a shepherd from the city of David, from the city of Bethlehem, where David himself had once shepherded and took care of the sheep, would also come a good shepherd, the great shepherd, to watch out over his saints, to stand and feed his flock is the words that are used here, to stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord. I tell you, if you were an Israelite taken away into exile at this time, it would have been an encouraging thought that your heritage was not lost forever, that this one would come, and he would restore what had been lost. Israel's future would be secured through the advent of this long-coming Messiah. This one shall be peace. In verse 5, we see a picture, not only of Israel's future and security, but that of the world around us. All right, given our time here this morning, let me offer just a closing observation. You know, Christmas time is a great time. I look around, and this is all wonderful. Christmas time is a great time, and I trust and hope and pray that you have a great Christmas week and the days yet ahead. Now, as we celebrate Christmas, Christmas to varying degrees is celebrated even in the pagan world around us. Even the secular world celebrates Christmas in a way. But my question to you this morning is how do you celebrate it and for what reason? On Christmas Eve, we're two services. They'll both be filled. Not everyone is in church with regularity, but they'll both be filled. People will be here. Some come out of love and adoration for the king. Some come just out of tradition. Some come to please friends or family members. There's lots of motivations by which people do what they do at this time of year. But as we wrap up this morning, let me suggest this to you. None of those motivations matter in the least. None of them. If Christ was not who he said he was. If Jesus was nothing more than a babe in the manger, if he was nothing more than that, if he was just a child of flesh and blood, then he's nothing more than bones right now. And he can neither help you nor save you. But what if he was, what if he is what Isaiah and Micah and Daniel and Ezekiel and all the rest anticipated he would be? What if he is God in the flesh? What if he is Emmanuel, God with us? What if he is the Ancient of Days? What if he is the Alpha and the Omega? What if the Bible was right all along? What if the angels were correct when they came down and spoke to the shepherds? What if Micah knew what he was talking about? What if this child is no mere child? What if he really was God in the flesh come to earth on a rescue mission for your soul? If that's true, it's a game changer. For this Advent season, some of us, even in this room, let alone the world around us, some of us need a reckoning with who this child is, with who he is and what he came to do. Some of us need to peer into the manger this Christmas Eve and come to terms with the one who lays within. To the secularized, watching world, this Jesus is just a baby. Maybe a cute baby, maybe a wonderful baby, maybe a virtuous baby, maybe an innocent baby. But the world looks around and sees in the manger a baby and nothing more. The question is, what do you see? I can assure you, as cute or innocent as this child may have been, as cute or innocent or virtuous as the Christ child may have been, you aren't saved by any of that. Whatever the world might see in the manger, when it looks into the manger in its mind's eye and sees a baby, a teacher, a prophet, a leader, what have you, whatever it sees, if it does not see this as God in the flesh, it does not see him right. What do you see? You are not saved by Christ's charm. You are saved because he is the divine son of God. As we saw in Micah 5, the prophet was not talking about an ordinary king. He was talking about one whose goings forth are from old, of everlasting. And if he was right, then all of human history, all of your history, hangs in the balance. So who do you say he is? This Christmas, this week, consider this one, consider the divinity of the child in the manger, and then this Christmas Eve, Friday night, 5 o'clock, 6.30, come back. 
come back. We'll talk about this at greater length. We'll explore that divinity further in a sermon that we've titled, What's at Stake at Christmas? Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 11 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.